Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Our Undoing Radio. This is the season finale, and that can mean only one thing. Special guest, that's right. Uh, he is the Jay... I'm, I'm going to read this from the back of the book. The Jay Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. The Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute. He has previously taught at Harvard Divinity School and Westminster College and is the author of a kajillion books. That's not on the back of this one, but it is like a kajillion books, including this one, which is The Flip, Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. He is the one and only Jeff Kripal. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Good to be here. Uh, and uh, just so people know, Jeff Kripal is going for a walk. So we're all in this together, <laughs> taking a stroll down a path. Uh, let's take a stroll down the path That's of The right. Flip. That was... That was the police car driving by, so I had to behave myself. Okay, good. Yes, please. Uh, so tell us, I mean, the obvious first question is, what is the flip and why is it important enough to write a book about? Well, so the flip is just this short little phrase I gave. This phenomena of people who are trained to think about the world in very physical and materialist ways. So engineers and scientists of different sorts and medical professionals, and they assume that the world is entirely made of matter and that matter is mathematically organized and that's pretty much it. And then they have some kind of anomalous or extraordinary experience. They have a near-death experience. Their sister knows they were just in an accident. They take a psychedelic substance. Something happens to them and they flip. And by that I mean they they reverse their worldview and they come to this conclusion that actually mind or consciousness is fundamental and the material world is of course very real but it's it's secondary and they also realize that actually their science or their medicine or their engineering or whatever it is they do for a living work just fine in this new understanding that their previous physicalism was just an interpretation wasn't really the science or the medicine or the engineers. So that's what I mean by the flip. A.J. Iyer, Michael Shermer, and Jill Bolt-Taylor are uh, three people who you mentioned having a flip, and uh, they have completely different and wildly interesting experiences. But did they flip? Because the more I think about their perspectives, uh, how much did it change their mind away from materialism? Well, each of those individuals is different. I mean, they don't, they don't always flip. I mean, Michael Shermer did not flip. You know, he's a famous American skeptic, and he did not change his worldview, but his experience was remarkable because he, he was very honest about it and basically afterwards understood why people are so convinced when they have these experiences. So he didn't quite flip, but he... He sort of did a, a half flip, I guess. Um, Jill Bolte Taylor, I think she did flip. I think her book's very careful of her stroke, but she she really comes out of that a fundamentally different person. AJ Iyer probably didn't flip, but was much more open to the possibility of flipping. He didn't renounce his atheism, but he was much more open to some kind of post-mortem existence after, after his new death experience. 
So, yeah, they're all different. It's interesting to me that, you know, especially, you know, Michael Shermer, uh, who's best known for being a professional skeptic, I think, of all things paranormal and ufological, like uh, people like him always say, um, you know, show me the evidence, show me, you know, the wreckage in terms of a so-called UFO crash or whatever it is. It's always the show me thing and then they'll believe it. And here he's actually had the experience and it affected him enough to speak about it publicly but it ultimately didn't change him. What What does that, I don't know, does that tell you anything about us? Well, I, th- I personally think the show me attitude is the wrong attitude. It, the, the idea that these are objects or events in space and time that every, anybody could witness and measure or replicate, I think is exceptionally naive. And I don't think a state of sub subjective consciousness is witnessable by a third party. I don't think it's possible to show me that. So I think that whole question is misguided, actually. Um, So I think that's what it tells me. Just because a state is not a show-me thing doesn't mean it isn't part of the world. It just means it's not part of that objective world that science deals with so effectively. It's it's essentially a, a kind of the kind of absolutization of, of science, which I think is really unfortunate and, frankly, not very scientific. Have you noticed a difference? Because I know you've, you know, you've sort of delved into the world of the supernatural, uh, which includes ufology. Um, do you notice a difference in people who are predisposed to believe in such things uh, versus people who aren't um, in terms of how it affects them to have these experiences? No, I haven't actually. I mean, I think all the, the whole spectrum of orientations and people have these experiences, and of course they respond to them differently, but I don't think the experiences only happen to people who believe in them. That, that's what makes them so interesting. And this, this little book, The Flip, it's filled with people who did not expect these things to happen, and they went very much against their assumption. So that's that's why they interest me as a writer. I'm not really interested in people having experiences that confirm their belief system. I'm interested in people having experiences that do not confirm their belief system. To me, those are much more interesting and frankly often more genuine in the sense that we don't have to worry about things like fraud or self-suggestion or projection or something. Um, so I, so I don't know, Jeremy. I don't know how to answer your question. It's probably a no, though. I mean, I just think it's like, I think back to when I saw the big UFO, you know, I had the big eighth grade UFO experience. And I mean, at that point, I had to have known what UFOs were, right? And all of that. And yet seeing it didn't confirm a belief for me because I thought it was, I didn't, I didn't, my mind didn't go there originally, you know? Like it went to, what is that, a giant toy? Is that some sort of lit billboard? And so I wonder if even people who are predisposed to believing in it, in whatever the it is, uh, when they have the actual experience, if some denial kicks in or if the same mechanisms kick in, whether you believe or not. I don't don't know if you've come up against that. Again, I think people are so different. And I think people respond to these experiences in such different ways. And... It's not that I think belief is irrelevant. I think belief 
does sort of set people up in some way to have such experiences, but often the experiences do not conform to their beliefs. So I think it's really tricky, actually. Um, and it's why, I guess, again, why I'm so interested. I, I, I'm interested in things that don't fit in, not in things that do. Yeah, well, and speaking of things that don't fit in, <laughs> I mean, I guess I would argue that the Western mindset, materialism itself, doesn't fit in with our true nature, uh, and that, in fact, somewhere along the way, we must have flipped out of um, at least westernized society, <laughs> slipped away from understanding right. the interconnectivity right. of us with Earth and the ecology of mind that goes along with that. So is there anything in your studies where you could figure out, like, how did – I mean, this is essentially – the flip is, like, flipping back, right? Well, no. Okay, so that's a good question. So it is true that Western society from about 1600 on has been moving away from – a world in which people are essentially porous to these other realms and that the human ego has become more and more or less and less porous, let's say. Um, I'm sorry, there's a lot of dogs. Don't here. let that dog bite you, please. <laughs> I'll, walk <away. laughs> I'll, I'll walk away from the dog. Um, and there are, there are a lot of good reasons that Western scientists and Western intellectuals have moved away from religious worldviews. I mean, religion does a lot of bad things, and and religious authority has suppressed a lot of what we might think of today as human rights, particularly around gender and race and sexuality. And there, there are lots of good reasons to be suspicious of religion. So when people have these flips today, particularly scientists and engineers, I don't think actually going back to a medieval Christian worldview, you know, pre-600. I think they're trying to take those experiences and integrate them into what they know about the world through science or, or mathematics or engineering or whatever it is. So I, I, I don't think it's a going back. I think it's a kind of new world that they, they want to construct, but the experiences themselves are probably very traditional ones. And I think that's what you're trying to say Western materialism, you know, is a wild anomaly in the history of human civilization. It's, it may be one of the only major civilizations that really thinks in this way. Uh, but it's allowed us to do a lot of impressive things. So it's, it's sort of a delusion that works, you know, to put it one way. Um, but just because something works doesn't mean your interpretation of it is true. And I think that's the mistake people make. They say, basically what they say is, science can make refrigerators and take us to the moon, therefore materialism is true. And of course, that's about as crazy as it sounds. It doesn't follow at all. Materialism is just an interpretation of the science that you actually don't need. And you can do the science very well without. Well, and to that end... Um uh, it sounds like the other thing that you're concerned with in this book is um, the place that the humanities at large have in uh, appropriately shaping our worldview or at least tackling some of these subjects that I guess we just sort of lazily give over to science and say, well, they'll figure it out. Um, is that 
working? I mean, are, how worried are you that the humanities are going to go the way of the dodo bird, and are the right people paying attention to your work to make sure that that doesn't happen? Well, okay. So, yeah, to put the book very simply, the humanities deal with subjectivity or awareness and its expressions in art and philosophy and religion and language. And the sciences deal with the objective world, things, you know, things out in physical 3D space, how to manipulate and measure them. And essentially, science has progressed by ignoring the subjective side of existence and insisting on what it calls objectivity, which essentially means eliminating the subjective perspective. The result of that has been the fantastic successes of science with the objective world, but our own erasure. Uh, it's essentially erased the human subject out of the picture. And so we're in a civilization or a culture now which can do all sorts of impressive things with the material world, but has really nothing to say about the interior world of the subject. So, so wait a second. Are, are you on a tarmac now? What's going on out there? <laughs> this is crazy, Jeremy. There's a point <laughs> um, the, the objective world is not behaving. Let's put it that way. Yes. But, but, I, but the, so the humanities have always been an elite enterprise. That's worth saying. They were born in Europe among monks and intellectuals. They've never been widely, they're probably more widely distributed today than they ever have been, certainly in European or American history. Um, and yes, they're in, they're, they're being challenged today, and I would say they're in decline. They're very much countercultural in the sense that they're about things that the culture as a whole rejects or doesn't want to talk about. Um, and yeah, I think they're basically being ignored. And I think the results are pretty obvious. Uh, in the political sphere or in the public sphere. I think they've been devastating obvious. Um, we've lost the ability to think critically. We, we've lost the ability to determine what a fact is or what a truth is. I mean, these are all things the humanities teach people how to do. And if you don't have that training, you can't do those things. And you can be manipulated by, by the media, by propaganda in very profound ways. I think that's exactly what we've seen in American culture. Well, and it's interesting to me that this would be the case because, um, I mean, it's been at least as long as since Einstein that um, we've sort of figured out that appearances are deceiving, that all of this thingness seems to be manifesting from energy, that there's non-locality, which sort of implies, well, I mean, I guess overtly implies that the uh, you know the 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 subject object relationship is important. That the you know however you view uh, or the act of viewing, I guess um, a particle sort of determines whether it's going to be a particle or a wave. This sort of thing. Um, why do you think that hasn't bubbled up into society at large? Since we that is what the science seems to be indicating. Well, because it's too abstract. Um, and it's, you know, technically it applies to the subatomic world, not to the world of people and objects that, that we inhabit every day. And, you know, physics is a very elite 
um, discipline that only a few thousand people in the world really grasp. Um, it's very hard to grasp quantum mechanics if you're not a quantum physicist, and even then, you don't grasp it. So these are all concepts and ideas that are not only really specialized, but they're actually not possible to understand with the human imagination. It's evolved, you know, to survive and adapt and eat and procreate. We, we're, we're not set up to understand quantum mechanics. Um, so I think that's why it has not really filtered into the public culture. Of course, it has filtered in things like science fiction and some forms of spiritual experience that, you know, only on the margins or only kind of through the floorboards, it really hasn't entered the public understanding in any in any major way, including the frankly the academic public understanding. We still operate with a kind of materialism that's about a hundred. 150 years old now. I don't see quantum mechanics in the humanities either. Well, it's interesting then that, um, you know, what the flip is, is away from the materialism of the last 150 years. And that's by these these high strangeness slash spiritual experiences. Um, prior to materialism, what would they have done? Reconfirmed people's religious beliefs? Well, maybe. I mean, is there evidence of I people mean, flipping <laughs> for whatever their perspective is prior to materialism through these experiences? Or does it just course. reinforce them? Of course. No, of course, all the time. And sometimes those experiences align themselves with the religion or the belief system of the time. Sometimes they did not align with the belief system of the time. I mean, plenty of mystics and saints met their end, you know, on a burning pile of wood. Um, it's, not, it's not always pretty. So experiences, flipped experiences do not always lead to comfortable or safe religious views. they quite the opposite, actually, at least in European history. Um, so I know, I don't think they, I don't think they've ever really fit in. They, they fit in more in some cultures than others, of course, but it, it's never guaranteed that your flipped experience is going to support whatever your culture, cultural surround is saying. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just always impressed me that, at least in UFO world, people have experiences that however they interpret them, whatever they think is going on, it seems as though the end result, fairly across the board, is that they have a personal awakening about the ecology, uh, about you know, so-called saving the Earth, although Earth doesn't need saving, but you know what I mean, um, that we care more about things that aren't just purely humans. Um, is that across the board, too? I mean, do these people walk away with that sense of the world? Again, sometimes, I mean, you you know as well as I do that some people who have a UFO experience are essentially traumatized by it and think it's a devil or a demon or something. Um, I really think the reception or res human response to these kinds of experiences is very, very variable, and you cannot guarantee or predict it. You know, it's it's really. 
it really depends on the person, um, not on the, the event itself. So I, I don't know, Jeremy. I think it's really complicated. And what about you personally? You've had a couple of uh, odd experiences. Did they flip you, or were you predisposed to uh, going with that flow? So, yeah, I've always been a religious freak, um, by which I don't mean I've had lots of these experiences. I have not. I'm, I, as I always say, I'm pretty dull. I'm, I'm not very porous. I'm, I'm pretty solid, solidly put together in a kind of depressing way, actually. Um, but I've had enough of these experiences to make me sympathetic and to help me understand other people's extreme versions of these same experiences. And I think that's really made a huge difference. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm particularly gifted in this way. I'm not. But I've had the, enough experiences to, that when I hear such an experience, I'm like, yeah, that happened. And uh, I can see that. And, and, you know, 30 or 44, almost 40 years now of reading into these literatures and talking to these people, I'm very convinced about what happens intellectually. And so, you know, I've long argued that the real flip that a culture makes has to be through education, through, through some kind of stable institutional structures. It can't rely on individual flips because they're never enough. They won't move the dial on the culture. You have to somehow get into the gut of the culture and, and flip it from the inside out. And that's frankly what religion has done historically really well. I mean, it's, it's given us containers and rituals and art forms and architectural expressions to remember these flips and re rehearse them essentially over and over again in ritual. But the problem with that is we don't believe those those myths anymore, those 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 narrative forms. We we may have believed them at one time, but, but at least a lot of us today just find them wildly impossible. Um, so we we need new we need new stories. We need we need new artistic forms. We need something we need something more culturally stable than we have at the moment. I think we're in a kind of transition period that's actually quite difficult and and quite uncertain. And I don't mean the last few years or even the last few decades. I mean the last few centuries. Well, is it your understanding that culture comes from the land? No. What is your understanding of where culture comes from? Because that, that would be like, I, that's definitely a Lakota perspective, for instance, and I think even a Hawaiian perspective. I think probably most well, nature cultures would say that. Well, yeah, I think most indigenous cultures would say that, but most other cultures would not say that. I mean, <laughs> again, that's a local perspective that Turks never have left that land and live on it and consider it somehow ultimate. But if you're a community, for example, that travels or that migrates, it, it doesn't work so well. You know, you, you realize very quickly that actually... The truth of the cosmos is not in this or that land. It's, 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 it's in us. Um, and I think culture ultimately is an expression of human beings and human consciousness. And I frankly don't think it matters what land they're on. They will express that narrative or that form in different ways, of course, depending on what land they're on. But 
it doesn't depend on a particular land because otherwise we'd all be sharing the same myths and the same stories. And we, we don't, Jeremy, we just don't. And the human species has been colonizing the planet now for, you know, a couple hundred thousand years. It, it just isn't on one land and it's constantly moving, it's constantly migrating, it's constantly colonizing um, places and other peoples, constantly. Um, and so I think it's, that is something we haven't really come to terms with. We keep imagining that, oh, it's about this land or it's about this culture or about it's about this particular tribe or this particular community, but it's not true. That's just not true historically. Hmm. Well, I would agree with you there, and I, that's not really what I was getting at. I mean, I, I, I'm getting at that wherever you live, if you're in tune with where you live, um, you know, the actual ecology helps form your your culture. You know, and and the, the most course, basic version of, of this is of that, course it does. Yeah, yeah, and so, so what if you don't live in one? What if you don't live in one place? Well, in, that would be interesting, right? Then I don't know. I mean, then that, ha- then that has its own sense of culture to it, right? There are millions and hundreds of millions of people. But my question is, like the way you're putting it, the way you're putting it, then so is there not a sense that like there were people in Europe who we call pagans or whatever they were, uh, really? who were in tune with that, who were in tune, their culture came from the land, who were then taken over by the Roman Empire, taken over by Christianity? Is that not true? Well, that certainly happened gradually, for sure. I'm not denying, of course, that there aren't all kinds of cultures that take their fundamental meanings from the land they inhabit. Of course, that's obviously true. I'm just saying that as a human story... (laughs) The question is which land and which community and who exactly are you talking about here? Um, and, you know, we live in essentially a global culture now. We're in global communication constantly. I'm talking to you on a cell phone. I'm in, I'm in outside of Houston, Texas. You're in Hawaii. We're, we're on opposite sides of the globe and we're talking to one another. So obviously it doesn't matter in some sense where we are we are in communication and we're talking and we're forming stories and narratives. And I don't think we've come to terms with that yet. Um, you know, let me put it this way. 200 years ago, our ancestors would have been born, lived and died within probably a 50 mile square radius or something. You know, that's all they would have known. Their culture would have been relatively homogenous. Today, that's, that's gone. That's not even possible unless you want to be Amish or, or you want to live in some kind of segregated religious community, you know? It's just not possible to be born, live, and die in one homogenous place. We live in multiple places with multiple peoples, and, and so we have to come up with new stories to express those truths. And that's where I think something like the flip becomes really interesting because it, it locates truth in human consciousness. It does not locate truth in the physical world. Although, of course, it's there as well, but only in relationship to a human subject or some form of consciousness. So I think that's really hard for us to 
to think about and to take in. And it goes against our past. This isn't, this isn't a comfortable conclusion. You know, I would love to live in a world that confirmed everything I grew up with in my German Roman Catholic Midwestern town. But it just doesn't, Jeremy. It just, it just doesn't confirm that. It, it disconfirms that over and over and over again. So I either try to deal with that or I deny that. That's really the choice. And there are lots of people trying to deny that. But I, don't, I can't bring myself to do that. Do you find that these types of experiences and that uh, supernatural experiences ever confirm anything for anyone? Or is there always that element of, uh, you know, sort of a paradoxical thing that goes on that calls everything into question? So I think extreme religious experiences like this are designed to call into question whatever the worldview is. I think they're inherently destabilizing. And I think that's a good thing. I think they're designed to keep the ball moving forward and to not settle into whatever the worldview happens to be at that moment and that place in time. This is what the history of human civilization or the history of religions has been. It has been one destabilizing experience after another. It's been one story replacing one story after another. It's constant movement. We have not settled down. We have constantly rejected the stories of our ancestors, and we have constantly come up with new stories, which are then rejected by our descendants. <laughs> that's, what, that's what history is. Um, so that's what I think. I mean, that's just, that's what you see if you study history. You don't see stability. You see constant transformation and constant change. And, and I think these experiences really drive, drive that, that sense. So, I mean, if we think of truth as, uh, you know, sort of a living, breathing stream of its own right, timelessness, and then we think of all this stuff as happening in time, um, then is this, you know, essentially – is the meta picture of all of this that it's a wake up call that we're not that we're disconnected from that truth stream? I mean, for lack of a better term, or is this just the way it always is going to be? Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean to be a bummer here, Jim, but I I think all of our stories, all of our cultures, have almost nothing to do with that truth stream that you're talking about. I I think. I think what we mean by truth is essentially when we make a statement about another object, it's true. Like, I'm walking on a sidewalk looking at trees. Okay, that's objectively true, but I don't think that has anything to do with the nature of reality. I think that has everything to do with the way my brain set up and the way sensory and cognitive experience happen neurologically. What reality around me really is, I, I honestly don't know, but I, I doubt very much it's that. Um, so I think all these stories we keep telling ourselves are ways that we form community and ways we inhabit the world, ways we feel comfortable in it, but I don't think they're true in any kind of absolute sense. I think, I think there is something true, but it's not that. Um, 
so I think there's a real disjunction between these these radical experiences and the cultures in which they happen because of that disjunction, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I guess let me uh, – well, I, I have one more question for you, um, which is you're talking about the need for more stories or for, you know, really a new shine on the same old stories, I would argue. Uh, do we also need new ways of communicating them um, as as those evolve? What, what do you see as the future of – because people don't – just want to sit in front of a guru type and listen to him speak forever anymore. Uh, and people already fancy themselves masters of this stuff simply because they can take like a shamanic retreat. Um, what do we do with that? How do we, I don't know, how do we speak to that mind? Um, what do you see the future is of, of us even communicating anything authentic about this in a way that people will be able to hear it? First of all, I don't think the dialogue is maybe say that I think as long as you're being honest and being an intellectual, what you're saying is very hard to hear and often can't be heard at all. Um, and I really believe that. It literally cannot be heard. It's not that it's not that it doesn't make sense, that people are, have, are inhabiting a different state of mind and they literally cannot do what you're saying. Um, in terms of our belief system, I think the real flip has nothing to do with what you believe. It's how you believe it. And this is where the humanities come back in. And the way I like to think of the humanities, I like to beg young people, my students, to not think their thoughts and to not believe their beliefs, but to step back from them and realize that somebody is thinking those thoughts and somebody's believing those beliefs. You can still have those beliefs, of course, and you can still think those thoughts, but once you realize you're not them, then suddenly you have a lot more compassion and sympathy for people who have other thoughts and other beliefs, and you don't confuse those people with their thoughts or beliefs either. You recognize that everybody has thoughts and beliefs, but nobody is their thoughts and beliefs. And that's the flip again. And that's what we call reflexivity in the humanities. And it's just a basic skill that you can learn um, and you can then apply. And I think that would, frankly, I think that would change the world if we could somehow make that, put that into the bloodstream of our educations and our, our cultures. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be killing and hating each other for having the wrong beliefs or the wrong thoughts. We would recognize those are just thoughts and beliefs. They're just things in our head. They're not those people and they're not the world. Jeff Kripal, that is where we will leave it. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this and for not walking us into a cockfighting arena or a marching band. I, I appreciate that as well. <laughs> Well, I couldn't, I couldn't find one. I was looking for one, but it, I couldn't find one. <laughs> um, is there anything that you wanted to uh, say about the flip that we didn't get to? No, I thought that was actually a really interesting conversation. And I thought it got to the core of some of the issues that often don't get talked about. I mean, I, I didn't mean to sound negative, I, 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 but I really want people to understand that the flip isn't free. 
it's not neutral. Uh, it has profound consequences for how one understands oneself and, and one's own community, and particularly other communities. Um, and so I thought I thought the conversation went in the right direction. What, Jeff Kripal? What? I can't hear you. That's it. That's the season. Everyone, thank you for listening. Jeff Kripal, thank you for closing us out. I will have a link to his book, The Flip, in the description of this episode. Please read Jeff Kripal. Read all of his books. They're great. And they are completely accessible. They're not like hoity-toity, uh, scholastic yawn fests. <laughs> they're actually well-written. They're funny. And whether you end up agreeing or not agreeing, it's always food for thought. So you are thought. You should probably feed yourself until such a time as one transcends and includes. And then you'll probably be feeding that too since you're being inclusive. Now I'm just going to babble. <laughs> Wait, now I'm just going to babble? <laughs> it's been six seasons of babbling. What am I talking about? Okay. We will see you uh, in season seven. We will see you at www.ourundoing.com and we'll see you at the Living Mystery Symposium coming up a little bit later this year. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.